0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix Our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, my guest is Dr. Ray Sylvester, Associate Professor of Marketing and Personal Branding at Anderson University. Ray was a senior lecturer and leader of two music business programs at Buckinghamshire New University in Wycombe, England, a suburb just outside London, and co-wrote the first music business program in Europe in 1996. Ray has presented across both Europe and the U.S. on the topic of personal branding. He is published through academic books in both the U.S. and the U.K., and he is a chartered marketer. As a personal branding coach, Ray works with executives, professional athletes, and chart topping artists and musicians. Ray's doctoral research was in personal brand management, and he is an absolute expert on everything to do with personal branding and brand identity. Uh, In this conversation, we get into the difference between a brand and an identity, and we go really deep into identity, talking a lot about what it means to tap into the various internal truths that we all carry, and then how to focus those and use those to create value in the world. Um, There's a lot of theory here, but there's also a lot of great content. I encourage everyone to listen to this with a pen in their hand. To jot down all kinds of questions that you can then journal on when this is done to really get a good deep dive into who you are at your most true, authentic self. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Dr. Ray Sylvester. And we are live with Dr. Ray Sylvester. Ray, it is great to have you on the show. I'm excited to dive in. You are an eclectic human being with a very interesting point of view, and I'm excited to explore it here today. Pleasure to be here, O'Brien. Thank you. So I want to dive right in. Just want you, if you could, to define your work and kind of what led you to your work.
1: That's a great question. I'll press rewind. My first degree was in business and I had a concentration in marketing. And um, I worked in various industries, but one of them was the music and entertainment industry, which I still working. in. And I was incredibly fascinated by the articulation of people's identity, because you've got the music recording, you had a music video back then, and what propagated success. And I started to realise that it wasn't just a, a great voice or a great track; there was a narrative and a story. And combining that with marketing theory emerged the, the, the whole area of brand management and brand thinking. So that was kind of origin. Um, and then I flirted with the idea about well. If products and companies and services can be brands, then can people? And then, wow, seems a long time ago now, 1997, a guy called Tom Peters came out with an article in the Fast Company uh, magazine, and he said that, um, I'm not sure about you, but I don't mind being called me incorporated. And he created the first reference to personal branding. And it intrigued me because it had been in my line of thinking. I was a little upset because I hadn't come up with the thought of the word. But beyond that, I think i had come up with some really lousy name like self-marketing. But anyway, personal branding has fascinated me. And now everyone seems to be talking about it. So yeah, it's something I've been reflecting on truthfully for you know
0: the last 20 years. <laughs> so what was it about the music business, like what was it that got you thinking about that? Like what, what connections were you making? Were you just an observer on the side and you said, you know, I think there's more to this. Or was there something that was happening to you in your work that you said, oh, okay, I I see this.
1: Well, a couple of things. When I was at college, I was involved in a sport called judo and I, I have to be talented at it. But the true story was I wasn't the most committed to training hard. But through my talent, and it is God-given talent, I, I was able to become a national college champion at judo. And when I graduated from a marketing degree, I thought, well, I'm going to get a sponsored vehicle because I need a car to get me around. Everyone laughed. So I sent off all these letters to dealerships, and I can remember now as I reflect back on all the rejection letters and the kind of, I told you so, kind of looks from family and friends. And then one day a friend of a friend said, my uncle's got a transportation company and we were talking about it. He said, why don't you meet with him? And I immediately had no value based on it because my perception of value was a car was going to come from a dealership. And I had already imagined the dealerships that would, like a BMW or whatever it might be, that might say, here you go, Ray, here's a car for a couple of years. Well, anyway, I met with this guy and he said, yep, I like what you're doing. I like the fact that, at that time, I was training and seeing how far I could go. Could I possibly compete in an Olympics? So that was where I was. Still, the truth, O'Brien, I'm happy to say it now, was I was just filled with talent but not much work ethic. So I thought, well, I need a car to help me with that work ethic. So I'm wrestling with my own identity here, the truth, the nuances, like we all do. Well, I met with him, and he said, yeah, i sort something out. So I remember coming Back, it was just on the cusp. I was in my final year of college. When I was a senior. And I, I came home because he said the car would arrive at my parents. And I remember my father saying, You have got to be the most stupidest person. You're my son. I love you to think that someone is going to give you a car. And as he said that, there was a knock at the door and there was a big truck and they rolled this vehicle off. And my, I remember my dad looking at me, going,
0: I don't believe that. <laughs> that had to be a great moment as a son, that had to be...
1: Well, it's strange because in relationships, again, when we talk about branding, you grow up and if anyone listening has been privileged to have a father in their life who's um, strong and pivotal in their life, you, you see them as this larger-than-life character, and then you get these odd situations where you realize they're just human, they make mistakes, and that can go all sorts of ways when you find that out. But um, it was one of those moments where I just, Dad, you got that wrong. And he was like, Yeah. He said, Well, let's see how long you have the car. Well, I actually had the car for three years. Um, so it took me through my final year of college. It allowed, enabled me to travel around the country. And in that time, British Judo Championships at the time, I was the bronze medalist. So the the uh, gold medalist went on to become a European champion and a triple Olympian. The silver medalist was an Olympic bronze medalist. The other bronze medalist was a Commonwealth champion, which won't, for most listeners, they won't be familiar with Commonwealth. It's just basically countries connected to the old British Empire. So Australia, New Zealand, nations in Africa, the Caribbean, Canada, and they all compete in international games so he was a come and there was just little old me because i didn't have any of those international titles um and i remember my coach saying to me well don't worry everyone else is like five years older than you they're going to be retiring soon you're 23 24 this is your time it was the last time i competed because i thought i'd take some time out with my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife and what i learned from that was that um you can be talented at anything but if you don't have a true love for it don't delude yourself. So it wasn't for me at that time. It just, I just didn't love it enough. And I, I know so many people and I've come across so many stories like that. So anyone listening, if there's something you're good at, that's, that's not even half the story. That's just the trigger. The rest of it is what you intend to do, the power of intention. How, how much are you going to put into that talent?
0: So that brings up a, a question that I wanted to ask because you talk about personal branding and if you look you up online there's a lot about personal branding but when you actually open your mouth and talk about it identity keeps coming out of your mouth and so what is a personal brand versus what is identity how should people think about some of these terms
1: that's a great question we flirt now with the realm of theories and concepts and constructs so the most contemporary research in the area would suggest that personal branding is marketing. Um, and many people, particularly in, in America, that's the, the biggest one. It's all about promotion. It's all about letting the world know how great you are. But that's only one of the propositions. Another one is psychology, the way you think. I think, therefore I am, you know, what you manifest, your internal um, dialogue. And then there's sociology. Now, when you mix those, there's a, An area that, if I forgive me, O'Brien, you're based in Chicago? Correct. So the University of Chicago in 1934, a book came out from uh, a professor who had sadly passed, but his students put together his notes. um, And he's called the, the godfather, not of soul, it's not James Brown, but the godfather of symbolic interactionism. And it's the concept. And in 1934, he said that all people are social products. Which is a fantastic insight. Back then, and the, the, the depression of the '30s, he says, we're all social products. What that means is the, the prefix of social products was given the humanity to what largely was just an innate object, like a car or some kind of product. And the notion is that the most successful businesses that sell products and services have a parallel universe with people. I I teach. In the realm of business and branding. And I will say to you, O'Brien, there's no difference. They're nuanced differences, but at the core of it, there's no difference between successful products and services
0: and people. Oh, that's an interesting statement. Yeah.
1: So what you're seeing is the exchange of value and therefore identity is important because marketing is the exchange, the projection of your value. But before you project it, you have to understand who you are, psychology. You need to understand who you are in the context of others, sociology, and then the other one is economics. So the four key areas that most of the contemporary papers, and if you want for your readers, I can give you a link, an online link to a paper that's probably the best paper I've seen written on it in academic terms and the four constructs, Marxian, sociology, psychology, and economics. I believe there are more, but it's a great stuff for anyone to read.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would love to see that, one, for my own interest, and then two, happy to share that in the show notes for the episode.
1: So do you want me to unpick that, the dissonance between personal branding is the popular term, but you have to pull the onion skins back on popular terms to understand what does that really mean? So if you think about it, human identity is very complex. People can hear us having a conversation, but they can't see us. So that means they're having to immediately use the information coming in as I speak to create a reference for me. Now, that reference will be different based on their own journey and experience. So that means they're psychologically using the realm of a memory and imagination to articulate who these people are. They're probably listening because they built a relationship up with you and they've got an association with value they get from your podcast. So can you see exchange of value is happening? Now, I've actually perhaps switched someone off in my conversation now or they're listening because he's got an English accent, whatever it might be. But That's what they're wrestling with. Now, the sociology elements are we are all social products, so we interact with other people. Thanksgiving is, what, 25 days' time? And Thanksgiving is a a time that I've come to learn. and Remember, I've been – well, not remember. Sorry, your listeners won't know. I've been in America for five years, so this is going to be my fifth Thanksgiving. Before that, I had no reference to Thanksgiving. And I've come to recognise from – friends and neighbors and associates that thanksgiving is packed full of meaning Um, for some people it's a great time of celebration and family coming together and others it's a great level of trepidation oh i'm going to go and see uncle whoever and it's not a good time Um, it's going to be after an election which happens tomorrow so if you've got a combination of people who see value in different political persuasions that's also part of their personal brand your political ideology your sexual orientation your faith base, your physical shape, your height, your your physical shape is your body type, your somatotype, your race and ethnicity, your cultural orientation, your location from where you are. All of these factor into your personal brand, but they are all constructs of identity.
0: So as I hear you say that, I, I think about one, all the work that needs to go into unpacking your own identity. <laughs> yeah right? It's not like you just sit there and go, oh yeah, no, I know who I am. Like there's a lot of work to unpacking all the different parts of you and understanding where they come from and what they mean and the impact they can have on the world. And then, you know, the other thing too, from some just internal work that I've done, you know, I know that sometimes you can define yourself and your identity in ways that aren't really true. You know, you you think you are one thing But really, that's an identity that somebody else has put on you or told you that you should be. And what, like, to your point, like you had the identity of being a judo player, right? But that wasn't really what you wanted to be long term. So maybe you had told yourself, oh, no, I'm a judo champion. But what you really, that was really something that you had done just because you were talented in it. And what you really wanted to be was something else. And so it, You know, there's a lot of unpacking, it seems like, that has to go on with figuring out identity.
1: Absolutely. You've kind of touched upon a couple of things there. You may think who you are, psychology, and in the realm of psychology, there's a theory uh, called the Jahari window. And there are four perspectives of your identity. And I I won't bore people with it. They can look it up. But one element is your hidden self, the one that you can't see that everyone else can see. Mm. So even in relationships with your spouse, with family members, they will see aspects connected to you that you can't see. And if you think about that, you never see yourself. It's a bit like buying a car. People look at cars and think, I want that car. I love the look at it. But when you actually break down the process of buying a car, once you get inside the car, you've got a completely different position of the car because you can't See, so what you then do is imagine what people are thinking about your car from what your own imagination is. So people buy cars for prestige, but it is really from and sourced from their original thoughts of their own self and the conveyance of value. That's why you see salesmen always have the nicest cars in corporations because they're going out trying to convince people they're valuable and whatever they say is valuable. So there's a very, very complex web of choices we make.
0: Are you saying that I need to upgrade my 2010 Ford Explorer?
1: Well, that says a lot about your identity. (laughs) Warren Buffett, you know, kept his truck for 40 years, um, lived in the same home for decades. That says something about his value proposition, although he was the richest man in the world. Where other people have a lot less money, but their value and their priority is focused on, I need to convince the world that I am valuable. So let me spend a lot of money. Now, I'm going to say something controversial now. Thin ice time. Oh, I love it. You Bring it up. You talk, talked about music. I'm a great lover of hip hop. And growing up, the translation and the era uh, of hip hop, if you look at it in that space into the mid 80s, into the mid 90s, there was this movement and identification of artists with lots of uh, the terminology at the time was bling. So someone might get an advance from a record label, might get 200,000. They might spend 150,000 on a chain to go around the neck because it was a symbolic articulation of success. And that symbolic articulation had to happen. And you still see people doing that and their, their cultural and subcultural traits that people have controversial. I hope I haven't offended anyone saying that because every community has subcultural
0: traits. Well, it's funny that you said that because that was exactly what I was going to say if you hadn't (laughs) said it, because I remember seeing uh, the image and I've seen it flash up a bunch of times, but the, I don't know if it's a meme or just an image, but it's of Jay-Z and it was when he had a net worth of like $500,000 and he's got just chains everywhere. And then when he had a net worth of $500 million and he doesn't have a piece of jewelry on him.
1: And, His values have
0: changed. Yeah. And it it's, I don't remember exactly what the tagline is, but that was essentially what it is. It's projecting wealth versus being wealthy and how you represent that to the world. So yeah, it's funny that we both, both of our heads went to that same place.
1: Well, give you a little bit of musical history. Um, If you remember Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, rest in peace, but they, they were part of the Seattle grunge scene. So they were people that were properly afforded in economic terms, a safe, comfortable environment. So they were individuals fighting with their identity or their cluster of values. So An important segue here, O'Brien, is the distinction between values, which are things that govern and shape how you carry out each and every day. But they cumulatively come together to create your value the way people see you. So there's a singular term. Your value is what you project out, but it's based upon values. So if if timekeeping is an important value, if, if courtesy, meekness, saying what you think are part of your values. They all mix together to create an aspect of your identity. Well, Nirvana with the grunge scene. So they um, arguably were rich on the inside, didn't have anything to worry about. So then they did the grunge scene. They wanted to be poor on the outside. And poor old Kurt Cobain, you know, he's got the, the plain plaid shirt. And then before he knew it, they blew up, became very iconic, was, smells like teen spirit. And then all these couture people are bringing out shirts that were styled based on the shirt that he wore in a video and they were selling him for 500 bucks. And he was devastated by all of this because it was like, that's not what I was trying to project. Equally in um, hip hop, you had a social movement that was reflecting narratives of the community. And therefore many people, if they literally felt poor on the inside, they were bereft of, value, they may have had experiences that are really challenging to them personally, then when they have the opportunity, you feel poor on the inside, you convey value outside, so you adorn yourself with things. So there's this spurious identity concept that you can get to know where people's values are sometimes by the way they present themselves to the world.
0: That makes me think of authenticity. So do, (laughs) do other human beings... Respond the same way to those two scenarios, or do we generally respond better to one or the other because one is more authentically true and one is maybe more propped up on the hype of something we want to be?
1: Another great question. I think authenticity is a massive area of um, research and discourse, and really, authenticity in a very layman's terms, is keeping it real. Now, if someone's attempting to keep it real, what they're doing is, if you look at that statement, they're actually looking to their real life experiences and saying, I'm not gonna migrate beyond that. So you just made the inference, O'Brien, that some people play up to something. So that becomes, they're posturing, I'm scared to use the term, it's used so much at the moment, but they've got a fakeness about themselves. So authenticity is owned by an individual, and at its core, it's normally what their closest associations were. So if we were then to say that, it turns the music industry upside down. That's why it was fantastic for me, because what I could see is the grunge scene was. We're in Seattle, we've got nothing to worry about. We don't wake up in the morning. Not I don't have a problematic background. But actually, their challenges were not so much in physical comfort it was in psychological challenge and we see at the moment a tragic epidemic in suicide amongst people that people look at them and say well they've got nothing to worry about and then you've got the other juxtaposition of people who want to prove not just to themselves but to their peers in their community they're successful and to show success you have to adorn those elements of success And you can chronicle things from baggy jean-wearing to Timberlands to Jordans. There are all sorts of uh, blocks of time where you can see the translation of people saying, "Okay, I'm going to be accepted and be seen real if I do this. Okay. and I often say this is an example, and I apologize to any listener in this situation. But if you see a couple walking down the street and one of them looks distinctly, in your opinion, more valuable than the other, whichever your assessment point is, whether it's you know a contemporary view of beauty or height or age, I think most people have had a thought if they've not shared it and they've said, what is that person doing with that person? Sure. That proves what I'm saying. That there's this element to our, our personal brand identity, which is a physical one, but it's not everything. So what we don't know is if there's someone who seems to be the weaker of a two-part union, we don't know anything about their background, we don't know anything about their life, their values, how they make the other person feel, how they're devoted to them. Because in modern society, much of particularly youth culture, it's based upon what you see.
0: Yeah. But it's interesting too, because so you let's take your two examples of the hip-hop scene and the grunge scene. And like I think we've all seen real people or images of people who were maybe dressed or presented the same way. And yet we can tell that one comes off as authentic and one does not. And you can tell the people who are trying to be, to copy the thing versus the people who are the thing. And it occurs to me as you talk that maybe part of that is who's willing to put in the work to be the thing. There, because like a Nirvana and a Jay Z both put in a tremendous amount of work to become the people that they became, right? To to put their Absolutely. message, to to put their brand out in the world, and then there were a whole bunch of other people who sort of latched onto that and didn't want to do the work or really represent the thing, and they just projected it on the outside. And I think we can all tell that that's inauthentic. Yeah, uh,
1: I, I would say one of the icons of hip hop is an artist called Kendrick Lamar. His favorite word, and he said when he discovered it, it changed his life, is discipline. So I, I completely agree. What I would say to you, this is the interesting thing, and this factors in something else that I've been working with people at various levels, is that your intent and your work ethic and your discipline is one thing, but sometimes th- those things have to come before sometimes the spoils of success and as a consequence we can now look at jay-z and say he was a great wordsmith but i can be controversial again must be just must be the time of day but without the tragic loss of tupac and biggie smalls would he have been as big because actually he filled a a vacuum at that time very controversial thing he's incredibly talented but i'm going to take the risk, and it's just a subjective view, that he perhaps didn't have the same charisma as Notorious B.I.G. or Tupac. But in their absence, and in the, the melee, confusion, and sadness that came out of that, he was someone whose narrative was so powerful and so relatable to so many people that with the partnership with Damon Dash, who actually came from a more privileged background, he was able to navigate when he understood his own value, that partnership is no more.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. So where do people start with identity? We've we've talked about a lot of theory. We've talked about a lot of these different elements, and I could see somebody's head spinning going like, yeah, okay, that sounds good, but I don't see how this applies to me. So where should somebody start when creating or, or not even creating, understanding their own identity?
1: I mean, you're already a personal branding scholar, O'Brien, because you've already said it by default. You start with authenticity. And the first thing you do is you go on a journey to understand your own personal truth. Because without confronting yourself initially, you're not equipped to deal with the world outside. And that gets really complex in terms of all of the, the areas we've talked about. So I call it your journey of personal and collective truth. So there are three elements to it that I work clients through, but just in short and in simplistic terms, one of your uh, truths is your, your background, your community truth. So how were you brought up? Who, who, who formulates your background to your listeners? I will say that everyone has worked with a brand director or a brand manager, and that's normally a parent, a guardian, or a sibling or someone, because they've helped shape and inform you. They've given you a name, they've dressed you, you've listened to music growing up, you've watched the favourite TV shows. We're impacted by our environment. So effectively, what you see and what you hear start to impact you. Now, the interesting thing is when an infant is first born, and I think we spoke about this previously, You know the, the primary senses for an individual is taste and touch. So it's very much about receiving, nurturing, and they're in that period of growing. But once kids get to a certain age and they can hold a conversation and they can listen, they start to make decisions based on what other people have told them. Again, very old controversial because some people, particularly in American culture, of free will. Most of us don't have, no one has free will because what happens is you're governed by the world around you. A great example for me is the relationship that you see with great sports coaches and their teams. They can create a transformational synergy from a group of men. And it's better to have a team of people that are less great in their own right, individual right, but they come together. That's more powerful than an individual working in a in a team and, and there's not a rhythm going on. So, you know, you look at that notion and that rhythm, it's transformational. Mike Tyson was transformed as a, a youngster through his meeting and eventual adoption by Gusta Marta. Now, we think about it Mike Tyson is a five foot 10 man who becomes the scariest man in heavyweight boxing. How is that possible?
0: Scariest man in the world. <laughs>
1: scariest man in the world. How is it possible? Because Mike met someone. Who loved him unconditionally? Basically, go back to it. Gave him value, and that value meant that as a fifteen-year-old, I remember first seeing him. And he was he was doing sparring with Frank Bruno, who was a British heavyweight boxing champion then, enormous. And you think, why is a fifteen-year-old kid sparring with him? That's the power of it because he got loved and accepted. And the sad truth is, when Gus and Gus's wife passed, then. Other people got involved in Mike's life. And I remember the moment as a a young man staring at a screen when Buster Douglas somehow knocked Mike Tyson down in Japan. And I'm saying, you've got to be kidding me. And again, it was another example for me that talent in of itself is not enough. It's the way it's nurtured. It's the way it's supported And and Mike Tyson is an incredible individual now and can really articulate about about his personal truth, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. To do that takes a lot of brave steps, but he's gone on that. He's even turned it into a a theater show where he talks about himself. So when I watch that, he is now connecting with his personal and collective truth, and he's comfortable with it.
0: Yeah, I've seen him on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple of times, and his introspection is incredible just about the journey Absolutely. he's been through. And yeah, you talk about a masterclass in identity and trying yes. to figure out identity, what identity was put on him versus who he really wants to be. It's it's interesting too. He just did another episode because he's going to be fighting again. And he had said That's in the wrong. first one that he never wanted to do that, never wanted to go back to that that place or become that person again. And now he is becoming that person or at least a version of that person. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear him talk about who he was and who he is now and what that evolution has been like.
1: So Brian, you touch again. This is the power of the site, the physical aspect. So Mike's lost all this weight and he's back to gain weight, fighting weight. That has an impact. The way people receive him now, Instagram's blown up. There are pictures of him before overweight. Morbidly obese, and then there's him looking slim, trim, and ready for it. And it's also then all of the people that remember Iron Mike from the past are now caught up in the spirit of the moment. Now they no longer have to reflect, they've now got him back. And what you find is that personal brands that are powerful keep and connect the fan base with them and they follow them through. So, you know, whether it's New Kids on the Block in music, or you've seen the the flood of condolences go out for Sean Connery, who passed away, um, the original James Bond. So for many people, he's the only James Bond. He's not just an actor when he is James Bond. When the latest James Bond, Daniel Craig, was appointed, he's only five for ten. Same as my test, and they said in in the the British press, he cannot be James Bond. James Bond has to be six foot one plus. So there was this big debate. So there was all this tension. Will he do it? But he's a great actor, and he does the role really well. And in the first film, they made sure. What we have to do is compensate. So if if he's vertically challenged, he's five foot ten, he's the average height man. We're going to have him coming out of the water, and we're going to have him so muscled up that. That's gonna tip the balance. So he had this incredible training regime. And when he walked out of the water in that first film, female fans were won over immediately.
0: And well, back to your point, right? He there had the value has to be somewhere.
1: Yes, absolutely. So they redirected it towards, and actually, again, sad um, perspective, but if you look at the average height of um, Mr. Olympias, when you look at muscle proportion and the impact, it's around five foot nine, five foot ten for men. Mr. So Daniel Craig's a perfect build to build muscle on and give it the proportions to impress. Again, visual illusions.
0: So going back to identity, you had said your three truths. You had said there's community truth, and then I, I don't think we got to the second and third one. What, what were those?
1: So the second one is your self-determined truth,
0: the decisions
1: you make in of yourself. Sometimes they don't go far from your community truth sometimes they're in rejection of your community truth a classic rejection phase is teenagers so if there are parents listening and they've got teenagers then what you're seeing is that you've done your job as your brand manager but guess what most brand managers are going to fail on some point because we're dealing with human commodities and they'll have their own uh, freedom of expression and that second truth is their own individual truth and then the final one is an individual's Moral and ethical compass, their values. So, when you mix where you've come from, which can have values in it, what you decide of your own self, and then what governs you in terms of your creed, your ethical and moral code, gives you a sense of who you are.
0: And I've done some similar work to this through another leadership group that I've talked about on this podcast a number of times. And I will plug again, as I plugged before, you got to write this stuff down.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Like you, absolutely. you can't just sit, listen to this and go, oh, my community truth. Yeah, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, out in this part of the world and it was kind of like this. And yeah, okay, that's who I am. Like you got to really get into this, write it out, go several layers deep, understand all the impacts of that stuff. Like writing writing this stuff out is just so important.
1: I would agree, O'Brien. So I, I run an MBA class in personal brand management. So um, what I get students to do at this element um, let's go back to community truth. You break it down to the year someone was born. What was the political, economic, and social aspect? If you look at Gen Z's today, they have been impacted by the experiences of their parents and then growing up through the, the 2008 financial collapse. And now we've got COVID. So generations get impacted. We've got a population uh, spike coming. Um, And people are using different terms, Covidians, whatever you might want to call them. But babies are arriving because, go back to personal brands, we're social animals. After war, 1945, there was a baby boom. That's why we call a population sample baby boomers from 45 to 65. Then you've got the Gen Xs to 79, 80, and then you've got the Gen Ys, and now we've got Gen Zs. And all of them really are people that have been exposed to different political, economic and technological advancements. Now, that doesn't completely define you because you can be a perennial and a perennial is an individual who's not subject to a timeline of when they were born, but they've deliberately made a decision to be someone who's engaged in mindfulness and in the moment. So they can be 105, 95, 85, all the way down to five. But that the perennial mindset is someone who says, no, I'm not going to be conditioned to things. So most of us are conditioned. I go back to music because it's a love of mine. Most of us will hear music and we will either become very nostalgic or we will jump to a moment in time and we will remember that moment through songs. You know, when someone's depressed, mostly I'm going to be gender biased, forgive me, but it's often people are in couples and, and particularly in my experience, girls feel sad and they've got a song that's connected to them in a breakup of a relationship. Well, you'd think they'd never play it again, but they do the opposite. And the reason they're playing it is that it helps them to stay connected to the value that they feel they've just lost.
0: Sure. Yeah, I could see that. And I, I mean, as you were just saying that probably 10 different songs ran through my head of all these like moments in my life. And I have some that come on, you know, that bring big smiles to my face and some that come on that you know i got to fight the tears back just cuz of you know whatever thought or the memory emotion. or yeah. or moment in time that was lived during that so wanna kind of direct this a little bit because we so we've talked about how to define your identity but i'd be curious into how to turn that into a brand and find the value in that because there's who you are today and the value that that brings to the world. But that shouldn't limit the value that you're gonna to bring tomorrow and the next day because you can evolve yourself and evolve your skill level and evolve the type of value. So, how does somebody take their identity and then figure out how to direct their life based on that?
1: Again, another great question. And you'll see lots of personal development individuals talk about journaling, talking about um, writing things down, as you have just alluded. The three areas I've spoken about connects to the first level of your identity, which is truth. And I've got the 12 algorithmic elements. So it's far too much to go into depth here. But what I will say is that first level we talked about is truth. The next one is time, then talents, and then treasure. And treasure is connected with the projection of your value. So anyone listening, you have to be connected to your truth authenticity. You then have to understand its impact on time. What have you learned from the past? Where are you today? What do you plan for tomorrow? Then your talent, who are you? Um, Both in your, your physical identity, but also in your professional and your private life. And then the last one in terms of your treasure is what you give out to people. One thing I've been looking at and researching is young people during COVID. They were already obsessed with screen time. So, if you look at normative standard ways of looking at and articulating communication, verbal um, and nonverbal normally involve an interaction between two people that can see each other and hear each other. What you're finding is there's a generation of people now that are in a situation where they're constantly communicating with others through emojis or memes or gifs, you know, whatever it might be. And what they're doing is minimizing their interaction. And using something to expand upon how they're feeling. So emojis give you all these feeling constructs. The negative side of that is that I think research suggests that young people could be spending between eight to ten hours on average a day on their cell phones. In a 24-hour cycle, at least with 14 hours, many of them aren't sleeping enough. So suddenly you start to break down their identity today, perhaps. Runs the risk of being challenged tomorrow because they're not building a foundation. It's very transitory. They're not building an identity. They're not getting value back. Their value is in likes, in connections on social media, but that's only a digital manifestation of who they are. And that's why employers at the moment are saying we need people that can hold eye contact, have a conversation, meet people, read people, read the room. Well, how can you read a room when you only look at a screen?
0: Yeah. Before I continue on, can you hear the baby crying in the background?
1: I can a little bit, but that's just real life.
0: Okay, I just wasn't sure if it was picking up in the mic. My son broke his collarbone last night. Oh man, he's I'm sorry to hear. About Twenty-one that. months old, so he uh, he must have grabbed something or done something downstairs, and he's he's been in pain all day. So,
1: oh, I'm so sorry. Man. Yeah,
0: not a, thank you. It's not a bit not a bad break, but I mean, as a less than two year old, trying to tell him to sit still and nurse a broken collarbone is impossible so the
1: good, the good news is he won't remember it but you will which we go back to time as a father you go for truth your truth is you're his father his truth is not yet something that he can permeate and keep permanent in his consciousness because you're gonna go back in time and give him stories in the present in the future and at first he might be endeared by it because it would be at a particular time but at some stage oh yeah apparently i broke my, my collarbone phone so identity is time-based and you become a parent i've got four children and it was one of those significant things in my life when you realize you don't know how you're if you've been blessed with parents in your life you don't know their love for you until you become a parent yourself
0: yeah, absolutely yeah
1: um, it changes it but it means your your timeline with your son will ne- it will always be you will be looking at him in a certain way he's always going to be your baby son but he's Desperate to grow up as you and I were to be our own selves that's that's the truth too. Who are you in your own right? so
0: <laughs> Well, Ray <laughs> I was fun. probably going to cut that out uh, when he started crying or when I mentioned that he was crying, but you have a way of taking everything and turning it into a great uh, teachable moment or very interesting fact. so I might leave that in now we'll see uh, We'll see if this makes the final cut. <laughs> but uh no, it's really interesting to think about and, and totally true. With the little time we have left, I do have one more question about value. You've talked about it a little bit, but I want to read a tweet that I saw that you posted, which is, quote, we all possess value. It is constantly projected, received, and perceived by others. Your value can be conveyed in social, cultural, experiential, cognitive, symbolic, and or economic terms. Personal brand management is about managing your value so there's a lot there. My question is, how do you guide people to understanding and maximizing their value and their return on value in a culture and society where money is what most people think of when they think of value?
1: A great question. It's why, O'Brien, I put that tweet out, and economics is only one of the Algorithmic sets of value. I'm going to give you, give my accent, the European tradition of identity, and some of the discourse is different from America. America's history, go back to the second level of identity. American history is on people moving to a country and maximizing value. So when I look at the history of America, there are truths. Remember the truth and the time intercede with each other. And conveying value is a fascinating area. I'm going to go into a controversial space. So again, I don't know the nature of the people listening to But at the moment, co- the year of COVID has created so much tension. To wear or not to wear a mask seems to be something that's created a lot of tension in America. Now, some people will think it's absolutely illogical to wear a mask because it's uncomfortable and it's just fake. It's not going to stop infections. And then you've got someone in the justice position saying, we need to wear a mask. So both of those are holding a truth, their perspective. Only time, the next level, is going to tell us where that goes. We do know, I know over time, I've spent years traveling all around the world and I've seen many people from China wearing masks. And I remember in my own brokenness and insecurity looking, why are they wearing a mask? Well, they had suffered in time an experience before COVID, which was such a shock to their nation that when they traveled, they said, I do not want to be in a space where I have the risk of contraction. Now, when I look at that, I remember those times. I remember how I saw it because I didn't have the value embedded in it because I wasn't subject to an experience they had. So experience of either reinforcing value or devaluing you impacts your identity. George Floyd incident has created a whole process of debatable things but one of the things in branding I'm fascinated about is things like if you take the word privilege again depending on your truth so I've had a i have had had a meeting this week with some people and they were very honest some said I really hate the term privilege particularly when it's prefixed with white and this was a white person speaking so I said great okay because I encourage everyone to speak their truth and I said, unpick it for me. Well, you know, so I then went to Time O'Brien and said, in your life, tell me whether thinking about your whiteness has been part of your identity. And they looked at me strangely and they said, never. Well, what do you mean? And I turned to someone else in the group who was Hispanic and I said, tell me whether your Hispanic identity is something that you remember through time, but every day, right? Mm-hmm. There is an example of the, the in, inextricable complexity of identity. You've got truth, but where your truth sits is interrelated to time because your time, as you suggested, is continually in flux. You're evolving. So for me, if you're white and you've never had to think about whiteness, and then you hear white privilege and you hear black lives matter, I think it's a normal condition, particularly go back to your community. You don't have people that look different to you then all of a sudden, you will interpret those terms with hostility. But take it to someone else who might be Hispanic, as my friend was the other day, or an African-American, and their reference to their truth based over time will be that those two terminologies are of value to them. Can you see how complex this is? The same word, but interpreted, because what we do is we process everything in our necktop computer our brain. And we take the signals in, we use our memory, we use our conditioning, we use our social network. And we say, is this good or bad? Very, very binary. And that's what we do. And a lot of my friends and colleagues say to me, well, Ray, you're trying to get us balance. It's almost like independent thing. well, independence doesn't work in American culture. It's very binary. You've got to choose a side. Well, for me, in terms of what we've been talking about today. That's one of the challenges, I think, as we enter right on the cusp of this election, is this notion that everything is just one thing or the other. I'm a black, biracial, British guy speaking to you. So those people listening ask, really? Okay. I happen to be a Christian. I moved here to work at a small Christian college. So I have lots of things that I can understand from the point of a Christian evangelical base. But as a black British male who studied the history of America before I came here over and over, it's music, it's culture, it's media, it's, it's governments, it's economics. I'm fascinated by the fact that every conversation I have with someone is based on what I would suggest is limited truth. So they're fixed by this truth. So for me, then, the journey is for us to get comfortable enough to talk, which relationship allows the exchange of truth. So at the core of productive personal branding is relationship.
0: So that makes me think of empathy. And you really build empathy by, you build empathy the most by experiencing or at least witnessing somebody else's perspective. And the more you do that, then hopefully the more you can empathize with somebody whose perspective you can't see. And so you just recognize that there are things that you don't understand, and so you can empathize and and try to put yourself in their shoes. And it sounds like what you're saying is that by creating those relationships, by going outside of your limited truth and seeing the other truths that are out there, you can then build more empathy and then build a more holistic truth.
1: So I've shared with you and the audience some of my truth. So part of my truth will be that from a, a Christ-centered truth is my value is reciprocated by me valuing others. That's my interpretation of Christian faith. It's not pointing the finger. So if I'm, someone's listening to this and they've got a different style of Christianity, I apologize. But mine is that my value, my call, the great commandment Jesus said is to love others as yourself. And that was after loving the Lord with all you've got. So that's my truth. That impacts then how I impact my own consciousness when I think about things. When I when I say things wrong or when I reflect on bad thoughts or actions, I'm like, that. I could have been better there. So there's this notion of self-correction. But sometimes with clients I work with, they can be caught in a truth where there is no process for self-correction. Now, self-correction only comes about by introspection introspection is most profound when you're in relationship because you get feedback. So the, the notion of developing a personal brand in isolation is dangerous. So if you look in the pre digital explosion, go back to music, Prince was an enigma. No one knew, knew him. He was this quirky, small guy um, who did these things, but incredibly talented. But can you imagine Prince, Rest in peace now. But you imagine a young prince being around now and he, he brings these people in, And someone's on their phone taking a picture of him um, in different situations. We would have a different situation because we now live in a 24-hour culture. So personal branding can't be protected like it used to be. So I'm encouraging people to be free, authentic with their relationships. Therefore, there isn't a hidden self in the same way.
0: So... Here's a question I have on that one because I I had this conversation with a guy that I worked with a number of years ago and we were talking about being authentic and the way that he liked to be authentic was a little rougher around the edges. And I would argue it even tiptoed into crass and inappropriate territory. And so there's one side of this that could say, well, no, that's his authentic self. And there's another side that says, well, he needs to work on having a better authentic self. And so how do you encourage somebody to do the work to become a better version of themselves and not just settle on, this is my authentic truth?
1: So part of the discourse I spoke about earlier on symbolic interactionism, there was a guy called Irving Goffman. So your listeners listeners can look him up. And he had a, he's written a couple of um, few great, books and pieces, but he talks about dramatological self. So he basically says, we're all performing. So you and I are performing now. So your friend was putting on a performance. And what we have to do is the gap between our performance self, he called it the front stage and the backstage. The gap between your front and backstage, the smaller the gap, the healthier you are. So if you look at the 27 club of people that have died prematurely, they've died through that process Many of them have had real challenges with overdoses or other tragedies. Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, you know, two people I can think of, Janis Joplin. You see these people having an early demise. And one of the things that I'm really fascinated by is the gap between front stage, game face on and backstage. So I say to my clients, you are what you are when no one's looking. So when you think about your friend, I wondered how he would receive it if you said to him, you are what you are when no one's looking. When he hasn't got the opportunity to exchange or extend and project a crass nature to him, but he's in isolation, who is he? Because that's probably the juxtaposition of his backstage, and his front one is the one you saw. But what the gap in there, I believe, is causing mental health problems for many people today. If you look at social media, people are now, their front stage is social media content and projections of self. Young girls of 12 and 13 worrying about how they come across on TikTok. No one really knows them. No one knows their backstage. They're obsessed with creating a performance um, identity, which isn't even real, but sadly, it's powerfully real to their psychological and emotional health.
0: Yeah, I, I love that front stage versus backstage. I'd heard it said a different way and I always communicated it the way I had heard it initially. And I've always struggled to like, because it's not quite right or easy to understand, but the front stage backstage is super easy to understand. The performance self versus the true self. What do you project out there versus what are you when the music's done and you're sitting by yourself backstage? So I, I love that. And that's a great, that might be not my next reflection exercise. Is what What are those two selves?
1: Yeah, what I would add to that, O'Brien, is um, go back to the University of Chicago and George Herbert Mead. He talks about the I and the me. So the I is when you are being introspective and you're there talking to yourself effectively. And your me is your social self. You have friends coming around or you go out with your wife, whatever it might be. So the I and the me. Some other people have extended that and I'm in favour. It gets a bit complicated though. There's the I, the me and the you. And the I is reflected of most of your past self. I do this, I do that, because it's based on history. Uh, the me is your present self, and the you is where you're going. So it factors in time. So can you see, I've been playing around with psychology, sociology, anthropology, marketing and branding, and theology, philosophy, and just going, oh, that's common to that, and just trying to align them to, to get some sense of it on.
0: Yeah. Well, it seems like you're creating some good alignment. It's very complex right now as well. But I, I think that's just because humans are complex and there's so many different pieces that contribute to our identity and our, and then our brand as an offshoot of the identity. So that's a good segue because we are getting close on time here. Where can people learn more about this stuff, learn more about you and continue on their journey through identity and, and personal brand?
1: So I can forward you on once I've got it organized, but I'm planning to start a, a podcast a series called Brand Ideology, which is effectively the journey connected to brand identity. And ology is basically the fields of study. So it's basically brand identity journey in, in, in what we've kind of talked about here, but extended over and breaking it down a bit so that people can have more digestible pieces um, starting with truth, moving on to time, talent uh, and treasure. People can always email me. Um, I'm a professor at Anderson University in Indiana. So if you go on that website, you should be able to find uh, my, me under the, the name of Dr. Ray Sylvester and you can always send me an e- email. It is RS Sylvester as in Stallone at anderson.edu rs Sylvester at Anderson.
0: .edu. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the podcast. I'm was excited to hear you say that you were going to be doing that and uh am really excited to listen cuz I mean one of the reasons that I started this podcast is just because I find this stuff fascinating. The the introspection of who are we? How do we show up in groups? And then how do we use those elements or improve those elements to get to some outcome, right? How do we grow Absolutely. a business? How do we have more fun? How do we build meaning in our lives? Those types of things. So I I find all of this stuff to be in, incredibly fascinating.
1: Well, one, one of the things I'm flirting with at the moment, and I'll appreciate feedback from both yourself and listeners, is um, developing a, an online grad course or certificate course in an introduction to personal brand management. So it then gives time over a, a series of three maybe four sessions where people get a breakdown of some of these concepts so if that's something you think is worth me pursuing i then need to speak to the the, the power brokers at my institution and, and and develop the processes that need to be in place to, to deliver a, an online zoom friendly or video conference friendly uh,
0: course well i can't speak for others but i am a nerd for that stuff so i think that it would be incredibly valuable but uh yeah. No, I'd be, I'm okay, interested to you. to see what comes of that too. Cause yeah, I, I mean, I think the more resources that we all have to do this type of introspective work only helps us get better out in our communities, out in our businesses to live better lives, you know, lives that we want instead of just the lives that are rolling along for us.
1: For sure. For sure. And I, I would say that just for anyone going, well, in you're looking at it, what do you do with it? So I, I work with popular music artists that have had very successful global hits, um, elite athletes, CEOs, but I also work with ex-offenders. I work with individuals who are disenfranchised youth. So really, I'm, I'm obsessed with helping people identify their value and then get comfortable and familiar with it so that they can regularly and strategically, with intent, be the best they can be.
0: I love that and I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ray, for coming on. I really appreciate it. We didn't get to about half the questions I had, but uh, (laughs) maybe at some point you'll bless me with a round two. Uh, We'll see. But I wish you all the best in the projects that you are creating. Really appreciate your time today and uh, can't wait to share this with people. And I would encourage anybody who has listened this far, if you are not pulling out a notebook after this, or at some point in the near future and starting to jot some of this stuff down, you're missing a lot of the value here. And uh, I'm going to go back through it with uh, my journal as well, and use a lot of these prompts to uh, go even deeper on some of the work that I've already done. So really appreciate that. If nothing else there's a lot of value for me. So I'm, I'm grateful.
1: Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, O'Brien.
0: Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.